Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I figured out who the neighbor around the corner is. Oh, yeah? I like him a lot. Ooh. He lets me talk as much as I want, is very simple, and has great plans. <laughs> okay, I have to meet him. Sure. Say hi. This is Metro PCS. Metro PCS is in your neighborhood. Come say hi and get unlimited data, talk, and text for only $30, period. All on the fast nationwide 4G LTE T-Mobile network. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figure it out. Coverage not available in some areas. One gigabyte of high-speed data included. See store for details, terms, and conditions at data management info.
All right, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is August 21st. The summer is almost over. Actually, this is the last show for August because next week uh, I'm away on vacation. So uh, we're going to wrap up this month here. But when we come back in September, it'll be our eighth year anniversary. And we got a kick-ass month of metal for you. A lot of great guests lined up. We'll announce them on the Facebook page and on our website next week when we get around to it. But tonight we got another great show for everybody. Bobby Gustafsson from Satan's Taint. He's got his band Hail Mary going on. It's more of a project right now. John Gallagher from Raven and his old drummer Sid from the Overkill days. And in the second half of the show, Mike and Franco V from Chains Over Razors. I spoke to those guys last week. We'll get that interview on in the second half of tonight's program. But right there, TT Quick, Go for the Throat, one of my all-time favorite bands from the Tri-State area. I love those guys. I'm glad that, you know, ever since Mark kind of hooked up with Accept and he's brought a little attention back to the band again, they get together every now and then. They do shows. I would love to see them do a little bit more and maybe even get together and record some new music or maybe some old music that they had lying around that they didn't get to back in the day. It would be pretty, pretty cool, I would think. All right, let's keep the music flowing here because I'm on a lot of movie prep today. I got my colonoscopy tomorrow, and I'm too far away from the bathroom as it is. So we're going to keep jumping back and forth for music to talk until our guests come on. How about some Enforcer Born to Avenge?
trauma with We Are Watching You. You know, the band re-released that Scratch and Scream record about two years ago. They remastered it, did a great job on it. It sounds so much better than the original. I mean, you're talking 30 years of technology came to play, and they really did a nice job on it. And, you know, it was Cliff Burton's old band, and they added a couple of bonus tracks from the original demo tapes that the band had put out back in the early 80s. Uh, such a shame. And one other tune, I believe, was on there that features Cliff on bass. Uh, and they came out sounding really nice, too. You know, I have the original demo tapes in my collection, but they sounded really good on that album. So if you haven't picked it up, go ahead and grab yourself a copy of uh, Scratch and Scream. Uh, they did a really nice job on it. And, and talking about Cliff Burton, I guess, and Metallica, everybody's probably heard the new Metallica song right now called Hardwired. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm reading the reviews. I'm reading what people are talking about and saying about the song. And it's kind of split down the middle. You know, some people think it's great. They think it's the best they've ever heard, which I, I think is a stretch. Uh, and some people hate it. They don't like it at all. And a, a lot of people keep saying, you know, it's a return to form for Metallica, a return to the early days. Even, you know, laws are saying, you know, uh, Kill em All inspired, uh, you know, uh, inspired them to write this album. And, and I'm listening to it, and it sounds nothing like the early Metallica days to me. Um, I mean, I kind of gave up on Metallica in the late 80s. After Cliff Burton died, I felt like the band had lost his soul. And they were just never the same after that. And Justice for All was a very disjointed record, but it still has some great riffs on it. And, you know, when the Black Album came out, I know that was like, you know, their biggest album and it broke the band and made them the mega stars they are today. But that was kind of the end, of, the beginning of the end for me. And I really didn't listen to the band after that at all over the next two or three decades. And I mean, I've checked out some of the albums as they've come out, but I, I wasn't a fan anymore. And, you know, Metallica will never sound like they did on those first three records. Time is too far gone for that. It will never happen. So people say it sounds like the earth. This sounds nothing like Kill Em All. Uh, those morons of Sirius X ever saying it sounds like these songs could have been on Ride the Lightning. I don't know if they've ever heard Ride the Lightning before, but that song and anything else on the record sounds like nothing that would have came off of Ride the Lightning. I mean, it is better than the last two records they put out, which were also supposed to be a return to the golden days of Metallica, Death Magnetic, and that other freaking crap album they put out. Uh, but it's just not the same anymore, you know, and I, you know, if you love it, great, buy the record, support the band, you know, Metallica's not sitting in their head, you know, sitting in the room scratching the head upset because, you know, like, I'm not going to buy the record to be a fan anymore. For like one old school fan like myself that they lost over the years, they've gained 25 more, so they don't really give a shit, you know, about the old school fans, you know, they're, they're in a different league right now, and I completely get that and understand it, uh, but like I said, I haven't been a fan of the group for a very long time. Uh, I'm glad that they're where they are. I'm glad that they took metal to the next level and made it as big as they did back in the day. Uh, but no matter what they do, they'll never select the old Metallica. I think Rob Rock, I mean, uh, Bob Rock completely destroyed that band with the black record. I mean, he tried to make, you know, James a singer, which he wasn't. And, and he still sounds like that today, like from that era. That rawness from the early days is gone. And I just, you know, I miss those days, but I still have those records and I play them day in and day out. But, you know, new Metallica, I just can't get into it. You know, everybody has their own opinion on it, I guess. All right, Bobby's going to be calling in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to get on a couple of more tunes before he does. Uh, how about we go with uh, some uh, Metal Malice, a band out of Cleveland, Ohio, back in the day. Here's a song called Severe Warning.
Primal Scream with Warrenson. That comes off the Volume 1 record. Uh, you know, Keith Alexander was a guitar player in that band. He's, I can't believe he was dead 10 or 11 years already. Uh, around 2004 or 2005, he, uh, he died in a, in a bicycle accident uh, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and he was also a guitar player for Carnival back in the day. Great guy. Missed that band. You know, I, I wish they were able to still do something. Uh, I don't remember who sings that song, The Drummer. Did most of the vocals in that band, but the bass player also sang a couple of songs on the record. So I'm not really sure who did what on that that track, but great album, Volume 1. All right, let me see here. We got about five more minutes. Let's jump into an overkill tune before uh, Bobby calls in. And we'll get us some more music after that. A lot of news to talk about. Dave Evans is back at it again. <laughs> so we'll talk about that uh, after, the, after the next song and after we talk to Bobby. So uh, how about we go some old school overkill, rotten to the core.
right, Overkill with Rotten to the Core. The man who wrote that song and all those other great Overkill songs before they kind of went down home with the shit. Mr. Bobby Gustafsson. Bobby, how are you, my friend? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to have you on here today. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, uh, man. Well, you know, we were talking about Overkill, but there's so many things going on right now for you. Maybe we'll get to that a little later on. Uh, but I know Hail Mary is like a big thing right now. Uh, it was a little project that I want to say you started to help out a friend in need. And uh, it was just amazing to hear that song with the three of you guys together. Yeah. I mean, whoever thought. I was, I was blown away by it. I mean, I just had the idea to uh, to help Sid's guitar player's wife and uh, – I mean, I was just really looking forward to playing with, with Sid again and, 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 you know, doing something good. He recommended John. John was into it and, you know, took a little while of getting things together and sending stuff back and forth. But it's finally done and finally out there. And, uh, shit, man, I think it came out great. It really did. It's a killer song. I mean, it, I know you did it, like, just to raise money to help her out. Uh, she lost a leg in a, in a motorcycle accident. Uh, is this something yeah. you think you're going to continue with, like, maybe, I don't know, not like a full-time band, but maybe just recording songs here and there for, th- for different reasons or just to put them out? I thought about that. I mean, I thought about two things. It would be, like, one would be nice to, uh, you know, to to use the songs, as, you know, other songs, I guess, as charity, which would be kind of cool. Um, you know, if enough people want to get behind it and, and, and support it and buy it, then, you know, then it really helps out the person who's in need. And the other thing would be like, you know, to to maybe try and get together with Sid because, he, you know, he's looking to do, he wanted to do an album, a full album with me again, which I thought was a great idea. And I was literally just texting him before I, I called you and, uh, you know, he's had some surgery done and some other stuff. He's uh, yeah, a little under the weather right now, but, you know, it got taken care of. And, you know, maybe when he heals up, you know, we may turn around and do something, which, you know, I think would be great. It would be. I mean, if nothing else comes out of, you know, the Hail Mary project, uh, would you think about putting maybe something together with Sid? Because you've got, you got Satan's Taint also that you've been working on with new music, but you really haven't done a lot of other stuff musically, like, you know, in a band. I mean, the, the experience of being an overkill kind of turn you off to ever want to be in a band again? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, you, you, you work with guys that you start something out with and you think that they're your your best friends and your brothers and that, you know, you're going to take care of each other. And then when, you know, there's money on the table, they kind of turn on you. And I, you know, I was just kind of shocked by what went down, especially being, you know, the main songwriter of the band, which, you know, in my eyes got us where we were after four albums. And it, if someone can turn on you just because of, uh, you know, money or they want their songs, you know, they want to write songs too, or, you know, there's just some, anything can turn someone against you. I kind of said, you know what? I really almost can't trust anybody at that point. So that's why, you know, I did Satan's Taint a little bit differently where I'm in complete control and I'll just pick different musicians and whoever, is easy to work with and whoever wants to work, you know, they they can do it, but I'm not tied into anybody like we were before. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of soured me to ever being really in, in another band as well as the, 
the actual industry as well, because you know to to put out all that music and and not make anything from it. And I know that someone else was probably making money off of it somewhere. You know, it just kind of turned me off to the industry completely. I can imagine it was definitely a rough business, and be like when you when if you go back like to the very early days, like eighty one, eighty two, around that time when you first hook up with the band. I mean, there really wasn't much of a scene. Things were just starting to take off at that point in time. I mean, is it like when you go into the this is going to be a business thing? We're going to make money. We're going to become the the biggest band in the world, or just like four guys that met got together, you know, started writing music because Overkill was basically a cover band before you joined them, and after that, I yeah. mean, you know. Back then, you got together, you played, you didn't like sign contracts, you didn't say, yeah, we're going to split the money. It was just about getting on stage, getting laid, writing music, and trying to get an album out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I used to see them in the paper uh, up up north. It was the uh, East Coast Rocker or the Aquarian back then. And, you know, they were doing some shows around, and I just happened to meet them through a friend. And they were a cover band. And, and, and when I first joined, we were actually, I mean, they auditioned to be on covers. We started playing some covers, and I'm like, well, you know, this is no future to be playing other people's music. I said, you know, I, we need to write our own. And I said, I've got a bunch of songs that I, I have and I can write, and and let's go in that direction. And that's what we, we, we started to do, just to, you know, to break out. But, yeah, we were part of, you know, it may have taken us a little bit longer because we got – signed in 84 by the time we did our album it was like late 85 before it got released we were still pretty much part of the the new wave of 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 the thrash metal that was was coming out yeah around that time that's what was taking place i mean did you at that point in time did you really think it was going to go anywhere i mean the the whole scene and and the music did you see like you know it was going to be as big as it was like years later well I mean, you, you hope it will, and, you know, you try and – there was a lot of good competition back in the day, and, you know, we wanted to be as big as we possibly could and write the best songs that we possibly could, and, you know, we we had the uh, the Slayers and Metallicas that were probably at the forefront and and various other bands, like, say, from Europe or whatever, and, and you know, we had our little niche – in the business we thought too. And we were like, well, you know, there's room for us. And the only other really say competition New York wise was anthrax. And, uh, you know, we were thinking out, Hey, we're just as good as anybody else. And there's, there's definitely room for everyone. So let's try and, uh, just be the best that we could possibly be, but don't, don't do it just for the money because that's, what's going to be your downfall. And inevitably that's, that's what happened with with the other two and and after rat left and they really didn't keep the integrity that we started out with and it was more like because they were like six years older than me everything wound up starting to be about money with them too and and i wasn't into that i'm like if we write solid music and we keep our integrity people will come around sometimes it takes a while you know not all bands get you know to that level right away i mean you know look at someone like priest or acdc you know it takes a couple albums to get to that point so you just got to keep your integrity and keep doing what you what makes you you as a band 
and and stick to your guns and not worry about the corporate type of stuff. And then they sort of, uh, you know, I think they lost their way, and I just wasn't really into that part of it. Yeah, uh, was it difficult in the, in the early early stages of the band getting recognition because the club scene here in New York really hadn't taken off at that time? I mean, you know, a few years after that, I mean, you had you know Lamar in Brooklyn, New Jersey had a ton of clubs. I mean, I remember seeing you guys out here in Staten Island. I don't remember if it was October's or February. I don't remember the name of the place. And somebody had stole the fog machine. <laughs> you guys Did around they? that time of the show, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I, man, I, don't I, steal a band's fog machine. That's right. You can't. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> but you know, New York wound up being a great place for bands, especially in the '80s, like you know, to get the foot in the in the door. Uh, but was it really hard in the very beginning trying to get noticed? Well, we had you know a lot of. There were still a lot of the bands doing covers that would play three sets a night, and we kind of went in with the with the with the. Uh, you know, we were promoting ourselves as, hey, look, we'll do one set and we'll get two other bands to open for us. So yeah. that was that kind of a bit of a change for the New York area because a lot of bands were, were like literally just, even Twisted Sister was a three-set cover band, you know, and they would throw their originals in. And, and to me, that was kind of a waste of time. But, you know, we, we found a few clubs and like a theater up in Fort Jervis that, you know, we, we played at regularly kind of gave us the foot in the door. But at that point, Lemoore started to be the big place. And once we got in there, you know, things like really started to change. And then, you know, Thrash became more acceptable and metal just started getting bigger. And MTV finally came out and bands were making videos. And it was like, you know, the ball was, was, was rolling and we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. But, uh, you know, we, we, we had a good, at least like two years of, of, you know, playing every weekend, either New York, New Jersey, we'd play October's, we'd play a place called Union Jack, you know, wherever we, we could, but we, we would actually travel and, that's what helped us, I think, in the very beginning was because we would go and we would do other cities, which a lot of you know bands didn't go that far. We went down to Philly. We'd go to Baltimore. We'd go to Washington. And we'd go to Boston, actually, before we even had a deal. You know, we would travel that far just to play shows. And those those actual cities became our second home and, and really helped us once once we got the album out. Yeah, you know, when you look at today, like with the internet, people go on Facebook, they post about a show, you know, for the band, and you get 100 people saying they're going to the show, 10 people show up. Back in the day, you had to, everything was like hands-on. You had to literally get in your car and drive places that you didn't know anything about, how the crowds were. We had people showed up, and it was more of a support system, I feel, 30 years ago than we actually have today. Yeah, it was all, it was, it was, yeah, it was very hands-on because it was, you know, you couldn't jump on Facebook and hit, you know, a thousand people in one shot. It was like, I remember going around actually on Staten Island and staple gunning the uh, little posters to the telephone pole yep. saying where we were playing. You know, you'd find the, the the busiest streets and the corners that had, you know, the most traffic and you were trying to promote the show. And it was word of mouth and there was a bunch of fanzines in the early days where, you know, once we did the demo, we hit those up, and we would make copies of it and, and sell it and hit those small magazines, and 
you know, you just built the following, but it really was word of mouth and hands-on a lot more than it is today. And, you you know, you didn't really get the distance back then that you do now. You know, you, you, you put a post up and you're hitting everyone who's on your list, and that could be like, you know, a bunch of countries all over. As opposed True. to back then, it's like, you know, a tri-state area type of thing. Yeah. I mean, Bob, you go back to the early days of the band. A lot of people forget that, you know, the first record you had out was on Azra, which was like a small label. Was that like, a, like, did you, how did it go like getting signed to that, to that album, putting that album out on that label? I mean, was it a learning experience for the band? Was it like the first real dealings you had, with like the business side of the music business? Yeah. I mean, it was something that I think Rat had found and, and he had worked on and it was some company out in LA and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, send us the songs and send us the artwork and we'll put out this EP for you. So we went into a studio in Jersey and recorded the four songs. We sent them everything and then we weren't hearing back from them. And uh, by the time that actually anything ever happened with that, we had already gotten signed with Megaforce. And that those songs didn't matter anymore to us. Then all of a sudden they hear that we're getting signed to Megaforce so I guess they decided that, okay, we're going to put this EP out. But they didn't, they didn't use the artwork. They didn't use the live pictures we had. They didn't use anything. So basically, it came out as our stereotypical black album. It had, yeah. our, it had our green logo across the top, and that was it. And it came out in, in 84 once they knew we got signed to uh, Megaforce. But we reused... We reused uh, most of those songs, I think, except for, like, The Answer. But, I mean, that was, like, that was, like, our, our, you know, our first experience. It was, like, one experience after another that was just, you're you're constantly getting screwed. And, you know, it just seemed to continue with with the band. Yeah. Well, at least you were getting screwed at higher levels because Megaforce was a step above Azra. <laughs> and then there was Atlantic well, Records. Or was Megaforce distributed by Atlantic? I don't remember at the time. I think Under the Influence was on Atlantic. Well, we did, yeah. We did Feel the Fire, which was just Megaforce. And then on, on, the, on the other albums, they got signed to uh, Atlantic. And then Taking Over, Under the Influence, Years of Decay, and I believe even after me, the Horoscope album was... Atlantic, Megaforce Atlantic, but you know that was like that was a whole other level of getting screwed over. So the bigger you get, the you know the bigger the cock up your ass gets with these fucking companies. I mean they 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 basically you know he took money from us, um, only told us we were getting half. He was taking double, and we were paying back everything. So we wound up making nothing on. Those three albums. Yeah. The only one we get, the only one we get money from is is the Fuck You album, and the Feel of Fire album because that was Megaforce, which John Zazula doesn't own anymore. It's a lady called Missy Colazzo, and she actually was the first person that that started to pay us. And for but, a couple you know, of years, you... I didn't even get paid because she was sending the money to Bliss and Didi, and they weren't oh. paying me, and she, and she didn't know about that. Until about you know two years later or so, I found out about it, and we straightened that out too. So, yeah, that's just a, I, another page of them fucking I, me over. 
Is there anything you could do legally about that, or is it just not worth the time and money to you know to get that back? Because sometimes yeah, it costs you as much as you get back a dollar. You know, costs you two to get a dollar. Yeah. Back. Yep. I've tried. I tried a couple times. I wound up spending like thousands of dollars and not getting anywhere with it. I had no co- cooperation with them. Um, it's one of those things where it's so long ago. No one has contracts, and you know the only the biggest the biggest screw over is. By by now is basically the live shows because they're still using so much of my music live. It's it they're continuing to make a career out of playing those songs, and it's basically like a jukebox. You know, if you got a jukebox in your bar and you're playing those songs to entertain people, you know the musicians get paid for it, and that's what they're doing live. They're they're still using my songs to maintain their career, but they're not paying me for it. So, you know, this has been going on for you know. 20 plus years now and you know it's it's to to try and backtrack and get all this money it's I'll spend more than I'll ever make with them so I just at any opportunity let people know what pieces of shit they are yeah <laughs> well if it's any cancellation <laughs> if, if you did leave the band horoscope came out I mean to me, the band, the sound was completely different. I never cared for the band for the next two decades. The last couple of records weren't bad, but they weren't the old Overkill. It didn't have that sound anymore to it. Your influence in songwriting was definitely evident on those first four records. And it shows, like, when you left the band, how differently they, you know, they sounded and became. It was a, To me, it was two different bands, in my opinion. Yeah, and, I, you know, that was part of the breakup where, you know, uh, you know, Dee Dee was like, I want to write songs and I'm like well you know you didn't give me anything that was really that good I mean you gave me a tape of some riffs and I was like okay those are cool and I gave him back the tape and he took it to heart that you know he wasn't going to write anything on the next album so he kind of flipped a little bit and went to management and did all the shit behind my back and the management was trying to like be like well why don't you write six songs and he could write six songs and we'll pick I'm like well you guys don't know shit about fucking music, so why am I going to let you pick my songs that are going to be on my next album that's going to maintain my career? You know, so I was like, no, fuck that. So, uh, you know, one thing just led to another, and I was like, you know, fine. If he, you know, if he thinks he can maintain the band with his songs, let him do it. And uh, you know, basically, they 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 kind of took my sound, my guitar sound. They used Terry again. So the album, after all those years, when we finally got our right sound, they used, you know, my sound to make at least the album sound good. But they could never write like me, so the style wasn't there. And, uh, you know, that didn't help them at all by, you know, by not have, you know, not having your songwriter. You, you, you know, you might have one good album in you, but then after that, what are you going to do? You spent six years putting all these songs together. And you got one album, and you got nothing after that. So you look at F- everything after Horoscope, and it's basically crap because they don't even play any of those songs live. Uh, sure, they really don't. They do focus most of the earlier records and whatever the new releases are, you know, to get that out there. Uh, that, that is so true. To me, it just seems like it would be such a, a disjointed album. If he, like, you know, you're writing your six songs, he's writing his six songs, it wouldn't be cohesive in my in my opinion. Is it more because he wanted to, because I know most of the money comes from publishing rights. Is that why he wanted to be a songwriter? It was just an ego thing where no, he felt like he wanted to contribute. Not at all, because from, from day one, when we had Rat, Rat couldn't write any songs. He's like, I'm the drummer. The drummer usually never writes a song. He doesn't start a song. It's a percussion instrument. 
and we're like, you know, you're you're right, and you'll never be able to write a song being a drummer. And we're a band. We're four equal guys. We're starting this out together. So we all shared everything, 25%. So no matter who wrote what, you know, we all shared it. And that's just the way we thought we would keep the peace in the band. So it wasn't really someone wanted to get their songs on because they would make more money than the other guy. It was just... You know, regardless of, of whoever wrote what, we all shared it. And I'm like, well, after the years of decay, obviously until my well runs dry, let me keep writing. I said, you know, there's plenty of time to, you know, and then whenever to get your songs in. But if I'm on a roll, some people have a hot spot, you know, you don't just fucking, you know, you're winning in Vegas. You don't just stop playing. You know, yeah. you keep going. So I said, you know, let me keep going until something fails. And nothing was failing at that point. We were getting bigger and bigger with each album. And, you know, at that point I was writing 90% of the stuff. I'm like, so let me just keep going. Why are you throwing a wrench in the gears? You know, and here they are, you know, 25 years later, it's like that was plenty of time for you to get some riffs in there. You know, why did you feel like you had to get me out of the band so you can get your songs on? I'm like, that made no sense. Yeah, so, I absolutely. Mean, just, no, there's just a, a complete numerous comedy of errors that, that both of them fucking did. So yeah. I said, you know what? You're on your own. Go ahead. Go for it. Yep. Well, well, look at it this way. I mean, Under the Influence comes out around 89. It wasn't a couple more years later than that that the whole thing kind of collapsed upon itself anyway. I mean, do you think Overkill, if yeah. they were still in the band at that time, still would have been going strong? Because the scene just like, you know, <laughs> the carpet got swept off from everybody at that point in time. Yeah, the 90s, it was, it was really unfortunate. The 90s, you know, for, for Thrash, like, it didn't slowly happen, too. It was very instantaneous to where, like, all of a sudden a bunch of the bands were on their fourth, fifth, maybe sixth album, and they seem to like lose their way or something and, and, and other stuff started to infiltrate, but it was, it's been said like for years, every, every fucking couple of years you hear that metal is dead or thrash is dead, but it just keeps going. You know, it takes a, it takes a, uh, you know, a little snap back from, from, you know, other bands doing well once they fail people go right back to metal again and you know then it seems to be doing well so it's like you know it go, it just goes up and down up and down but it, it seems to always still be there yeah yeah uh, well after overkill you were still there too because you started with the eye front eye which wound up turning into gripping i think years later or something like uh, what, what came about with that project how did that all come about um, well, I, tr- I, I tried to do something a little different instead of really just doing the, the thrash stuff. I was trying to be a little bit more simple, a little bit more groovy. Cause I felt that that was kind of the way it was going before it actually went that way. So, I mean, the way I kind of felt things were going, it did, but we just weren't caught up in it. I mean, we really just, it, it didn't work out whether it was the members or, or the songs or whatever. And then um, I wound up hooking up with Billy Milano, and I moved to California with him. We were going to play with Perry from Violence, and 
it didn't work out, and he moved, Billy moved back to New Jersey, and I stayed there. So then I started a second Eye for an Eye out in California with Tom, the drummer from Exodus, and uh, a guy, John, from, for, I think he played with Forbidden and a couple other bands. But um, that really didn't, you know, we made a demo, but that really didn't catch with anyone either. And then just being out on the West Coast, I hooked up with Lombardo because we knew each other from the Slayer tours. And then we started Grip, and we just, it just wasn't, nothing was like really, I wasn't excited about any of it. I mean, none of, yeah. none of it was like over the top great, even though, you know, he still is a phenomenal drummer. It's just none of it was really gelling. So I just kind of gave up on that. And and just about the time I was going to come back to New York after living out there for two years, um, I was with the, man- the manager for uh, Screw, and they needed a guitar player because the guitar player split and they were still in the studio. So she asked me if I would go down to Texas and help them out. So then I wound up being with Screw. And then I was with them for about a year and, and you know, really wasn't too much into it. And then uh, I always wanted to come back down to Florida and uh, I wound up down here. Well, well, Screw, you uh, did play on the Shadow of a Doubt record on Screw. Yes. Yeah, they were in El Paso. We were, they were still in the studio. So I had learned, I think, the nine or ten songs that they had. And uh, I actually played on it. I recorded it. And uh, then we did the tour. We did a tour opening up for Creator. And that's basically what we did. I think they went to Europe after that. And and uh, I didn't go with them to Europe. I, you know, I just wanted to move to Florida and just get away from from the business and touring and and I mean Sid was Sid was actually the the road manager sound man for Screw on that tour which was really that was odd because <laughs> I was back on the road with him again but at that point I really didn't want to play anymore I'm like this is just never gonna work out and I moved to Florida I wound up playing with Response Negative a little local band down here you know for about a year or two and and I just kind of said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta kind of give up on this dream. Maybe I said, you know, I'm just sleeping on floors and couches just to play in bands, and it's just not working. I gotta get my shit together. And then uh, I gave it up for a couple of years, but then you know, just recently with with uh, Facebook, I had started up Satan's Taint because the fans really wanted to hear something again. So it's, it's basically just all for you know, people, the fans who want to hear it, you know? Yeah. Why is it that I remember you working with Cycle Sluts from Hell? Am I wrong? Oh, shit, I forgot. <laughs> I totally forgot. How the hell do you forget about the Sluts? Um, <laughs> That's odd. Yeah, I went... Uh, that was the first thing I did. That was actually the first thing I did right after Overkill. They were also in the studio, and their guitar player had split. And they're like, we need somebody to do two guitar solos. Would you mind coming in and doing it? And I was like, hell no, man. I mean, I've known that for years, you know, in the city and everything. So uh, they sent me the song. I learned the solos. I went up to, like, the Hit Factory, which was, like, amazing, amazing studio in Manhattan. And I knocked out the solos, and they were like, holy shit, this is great. You know, do you feel like, you know, going on tour? 
And I was like, yeah, what you got lined up? They're like, oh, we got Motorhead for two months in Europe. I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned I learned their songs, and we went we went out on a tour, and uh, we did the video, and uh, we started writing songs for a second album. But you know, politics in the music industry, we stepped on somebody's toes by stealing the Motorhead tour. Uh, they got blackballed. Hey, I think we lost. Uh, I think we lost Bobby there. Yeah, we lost Bobby there. Right, you know what? Let's give him a second to call back in, and uh, he's probably still talking. Doesn't realize he got disconnected. <laughs> we'll give him a second, then we'll find out what went on with the Cycle Sludge from Hell and that tour. And we're gonna wrap it up anyway in a few minutes because we have another interview. We got to air, get on some more music, talk about the news, and hit the head as quick as possible. <laughs> so let's just wait a little bit till Bobby calls back in. If he doesn't call in a minute, I will uh, reach out to him. And maybe we'll jump into an overkill song, or I know I don't want to play the Hail Mary song because the people take it for free off the internet, and it's you know it's supposed to be for charity, so uh, maybe we won't play it. Maybe we will. We'll see. But let me just give Bobby a call back because I don't know if he realizes he's got disconnected or not. Hang on here. Ba 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 ba. Okay. Hey Bobby, you there? Mike, hey, yeah. Something yeah, we got happened. disconnected. Uh, that's life. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you're talking about getting blackballed uh, because of the Motorhead tour. Yeah, someone from Sony got a little pissed off because they wanted their band on on the Motorhead tour, and uh, they kind of blackballed the band until they got dropped, and we never got a chance to do a second album. So at that point, I had moved on, and while I was with them, I was still writing my own songs. That's when I started Eye for an Eye. I did Eye for an Eye after the Cycle Sluts, actually. Yeah. Uh, I wish I wasn't crazy. I know I remember that. But now with Satan's Taint, I mean, where do you stand with that? Uh, are you working on new music right now to get out for people? Yeah, we did. Um, I did five songs last year. We put them out on uh, on the Internet mostly because a lot of people, it was half and half. It was like 50-50 that people wanted CDs. Other people say they don't buy CDs anymore. They just download music. So I, I went with putting them out on uh, on TuneCore, and uh, it, it did really well, and I was, like, very surprised with it. But they take 30% of the dollar that they sell each song for. Yeah. And, you know, that was, like, that wound up being a lot. And I'm, like, I'm not looking to make money. I'm just looking to break even and maybe have some extra to keep recording. So this time around, I wrote another five songs, which, I mean, I think are, are killer. This is like some of the best stuff that I've done. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put these five out on the CD and add the other five songs with it. So if you have them already, now you can have them on CD. Excuse me. Oh, man. But, God bless I got <laughs> thank you. Um God, I hope I'm not allergic to beer. Um <laughs> that'd be horrible. Uh, <laughs> that would be horrible. But I think what I'm gonna do is uh just add these these five on as as a bonus with the new five. So you know, I'm gonna try and get them remastered and, and at least have them sound a little bit different. I'm gonna add a guitar pick in and some stickers and stuff and, and sell a CD that has ten songs on it. 
Uh, that'll be fantastic, man. Hey, Bobby, I'm going to have to let you go in a few minutes because I want to play some music. we got another guest waiting to come on the show. But the Hail cool. Mary, the Hell and Back single, people can buy it now for a couple of bucks. It's going to a great cause to help people. I hope that you guys, you three, you do get together in the future, keep putting out songs here and there. It was just such a great combination of the three of you. Having you sit back together again, and John, the guy's amazing. Yeah, I mean, check it out. I mean, it's on CD, baby. And, uh, you know, if we sell enough of these and it's going to be worth it, we'll, we'll definitely do more, more Hail Mary stuff. But the, uh, the Satan's Taint stuff should be out in uh, a couple of months. I'm looking forward to getting that, Bobby. You have a great weekend. I know it's awesome. almost over now, but enjoy the sunshine in Florida. All right. Thanks, Mike. You got to take care, buddy. Take care, Bobby buddy. Bobby Gustafsson, Satan's Taint, Hail Mary, Overkill, Eye for an Eye, you name it. Great guitar player, great songwriter. Let's do some more overkill.
right, in union we stand. I want to thank Bob for calling in and being our guest tonight. I could have talked a lot longer, but like I said, I need to get to the bathroom real quick when I have to, and that was it. I reached the breaking point today. All right, well, we still got the guys from, excuse me, Chains Over Razors calling in. In a little, Well, we actually spoke to them already. The interview was pre-recorded. We'll get that on in about 15 minutes or so. We'll get on more music between now and then. Uh, Dave Evans, you know, the, the uh, original singer, if that's what you want to say, from ACDC, who was in the band for like a few months. Uh, we spoke about him last week, uh, talking about trying to get back with the band if they needed him. Now he's saying that he's going to re-release uh, or release an, an old ACDC tune that the band didn't want to record. So this is a song that the band wrote before they were really the ACDC that we know uh, 40 years ago, and he's going to re-record it and <laughs> put it out there. I've never seen a guy who's such a whore for attention on something that he was so little a part of. I mean, every day gets better and better reading about the stuff that this guy says. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I don't think I've seen one article about this guy that he posts on his uh, website or Facebook page that doesn't somehow relate him to ACDC. It's just unbelievable. I mean, let it go. It was 43. Yes, it's something to talk about, say that you were part of. Now, it's like a Paula story. It's not something you talk about every freaking day in the paper. I mean, even Al Atkins doesn't do that. He was the original singer for Judas Priest. I mean, come on, give it a break. <laughs> Enough with this guy already. Holy crap in heaven. All right. Well, like I said, next month, September, our eighth year anniversary. Uh, <clears throat> that actually falls on the same Sunday as the show this, um, uh, that month. And Mike Sabatini from Attack is going to be our co-host. We're going to play attacking music throughout the show. We're going to debut a couple of new songs off their newest record, which I'm looking forward to. Actually, I think the band today on Facebook posted a video with little bits and pieces and samples of the new record. Check it out. It's an amazing album. Uh, we'll have Mike picking out some of his favorite heavy metal tunes. We'll talk about each album and the whole attacker career. I think Mike was the first guest I ever had on the show eight years ago when we started. So it'd be a kind of cool way to celebrate by having him on here for that. We've also got interviews. Uh, let me just come up this month. I just made a quick note of it here for everybody because we haven't locked in some of the dates yet. But we've got Jeff Tate from Operation Mindcrime, Mike Howe from Metal Church, Michael Sweet from Striper. Uh, who else do we have on the show? We got the guys. We got Chris Black from High Spirits on. Uh, actually, when we come back in September. Uh, a few other bands. Uh, John Deddy from uh, used to be with Slayer and Anthrax, a lot of other bands. He's got a new band called Mashik. Out if I'm pronouncing it right, I'm not even sure. And uh, so many other great guests coming on. So stick around. It's going to be a great month in September. Right now, I'm going to head up to Canada. Some sacrifice.
right, that was Dover Trench was tight as vice. Ah, uh, boy, we're almost through the show. 45 more minutes to go. Uh, so Sammy Hagar apologized to, uh, I guess, the Van Halen brothers, Eddie Van Halen. I guess with all the shit they were talking about each other over the years. Uh, I don't know if this is a way of leading up to a new uh, Van Halen tour or reunion with Sammy Hagar. I mean, the last tour with, Sam, with David Lee Roth was a big one. I mean, it went over well, but he really can't sing live anymore. I mean, he was always a great frontman. He still is, but his voice wasn't there. And I don't know if they figured maybe they'll strike with Sammy Hagar again. I don't know what the plans are, but I think that's kind of opened up the door to a Sammy Hagar-Van Halen reunion. Uh, maybe 2017, maybe the year after that, who knows, but I think it's something that's definitely coming up on the horizon. I'm looking forward to hearing the new Pretty Mage record, Kingmaker. I mean, such a big fan of these guys in the very early days of the band, and then they kind of went the Def Leppard route, you know, after Red Hot and Heavy with trying to get a little bit more commercial commercial rock sound, and I kind of lost it for the band after that for a lot of years. There were, there were a couple of good cuts, you know, on, on some of the albums, but nothing like really like that stood out. I brought back those early days. And it's something that I've noticed that bands that have been around, that haven't broken up, that have been together steadily since the 80s, the sound has changed so drastically over the years that I don't recognize a lot of those bands. But then you have a band like Iron Maiden who kind of stood to the same formula year after year. Even Judas Priest, I mean, when Halford was out of the band, they kind of adopted a new sound with Ripper Owens, uh, something that was a little bit more modern. But once Halford came back into the group, they kind of picked up where they left off again. Uh, but it's just like the, you know, I, I was making fun of J.J. French when he said that nobody wants to hear, you know, new music by old bands because I, I feel like that's not true. But now when I started thinking about, it, like, you know, I don't want to hear new music by Metallica. I don't want to hear new music by most of the bigger bands that have been around for the last 30 years. I guess, you know, I guess I was kidding myself because I, I feel the same way, I think, now. I really don't want to hear new music by those bands because I felt like, you know, they're just not putting out the same type of music. But then you have bands like, you know, Ruthless, that broke up for a lot of years, came back together. They put out a killer record. It seems like the underground bands that have gotten back together are putting out great records like they used to back in the day where a lot of the bigger bands aren't doing that. And, you know, I know 30 years of writing music, your style changes. You know, things happen around you. It give you a different vibe and outlook on how you write songs. But I, I, you know what? I don't want to hear new music by the old bands if they're going to put out shit. I want to hear good music. So I'm hoping that this pretty major record kind of brings the band back a little bit to that earlier sound. I don't see it happening because it haven't been like that in many, many years. Not that they put out bad records. It's just not, it's not City Lights. You know, it's not Shelly the Maid. And that's kind of what I want to hear from Pretty Maids. And I know I'm never going to get it again. Even though live they do a lot of those songs and they sound great. I would love to hear something in that vein come out by the group. So let's see if Kingmaker is that type of record. We'll find out really soon. All right, let's get on. Uh, you know what? Let's just jump right into the interview. Uh, I, I spoke with uh, Mike and Franco uh, from Chains Over Razors last week. The bands have a couple of shows. I wanted to play it last week, but I didn't get the album yet. Uh, they, it wasn't sent out to me in time, so I kind of held off the interview until this week, and the album still hasn't come yet, so I can't even play any music off of it for you. Uh, but I will do that when the album comes. It'll probably be here tomorrow, like always. We'll get on the music next week. But uh, here's what the guys had to say. Sit back and relax. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Mike. Hello, this is Mike. How are you? Mike, can you hear hey, me? Hey, Mike. This is Mike. <laughs> it's easy What's to remember happening? that name. <laughs> How you yeah, doing? You know, sometimes I still forget. <laughs> I hear that. Hey, listen, Mike, it's good to have you on here today, man. Things are starting to look up for the band. Things are happening. The debut record. Crown the Villain is out, a bunch of shows coming up. Looks like this is going to be the year for the band to take off. Yeah, definitely. And, and by the way, I have uh, our lead thinker, Franco V. Rock, in on this conversation over here, this interview. So uh, 
feel free to, you know, pitch his brain. You got it. How you doing, Franco? I'm good. Yourself? I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to have both of you on here today. I mean, the two of you guys have actually been together uh, for a long time. You've been playing since the Beneath Me days uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah, something like uh, November of 2007, I think it was. Yeah. November 2007, yeah. Wow. So it's been a long time. Uh, since, and also, Andy's been a part of it, two to three of you. Uh, let's go back to kind of like the end of uh, Beneath Me, going into the beginning of the new band. I mean, since the three of you were together in the old band, what kind of happened that you didn't want to like be a part of that anymore or wanted to rebrand yourself and start new? What took place? Well, uh, you know, we've gone through so many different members, and us three have been the core. And uh, and my twin brother, Andy, who's definitely stuck with us, he's on drums. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we just felt that we were, us three, moving in a different direction, and... Um, we, you know, and we just—that's just how it took place. It just naturally happened that way. Yeah. You know I mean, there was there was nothing really that that uh you know that was a tragedy or anything like that. It was just like okay, we we were just on a different level, I guess is just a easier way to say it. Yeah, the sure. chemistry was there from day one, you know. So even during the Beneath Me days, you know, the chemistry was there when we first met. So. We always had the same, you know, mentality of writing music the yeah. same way all the time. Okay. I mean, is that like a difficult part of being in a band today is finding, you know, four or five guys that kind of have the same vision, the same direction, are willing to put everything into the pot and go with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's extremely difficult to find like-minded people with the same drive and vision and musically the same taste. Um, you yeah. know, you can... You know, I mean, we've all been in bands previous before we even met, and you know, you you maybe have one other guy that you gel with, and you might have a few other guys that just don't see eye to eye. You might have a vision on where the direction's going, but they're just not seeing it, and it you know it can make things difficult. And with us three, it just naturally happens. We just know each other musically, um, our style and the way we write. That we don't even have to really think about it. It's like we can write an idea and send it. And it's like, oh, man, like, I had an idea that's going to work with that, too, and it just comes together. It was just complete natural. And, yeah. you know, and Franco being with us for so long, I mean, it was like a, you know, long-lost brother that came into the band, and it was finally complete. Uh, what do you think is the hardest part of it, or the, or the, the downside of it, is that people aren't willing to... I mean, it's a lot of sacrifice being in a band. We all know that. People remember the days of piling to the back of a van, traveling for hours, doing a show, not making money, not getting paid. That that happens in the beginning. It takes a long time to build up a following. You think people aren't willing to sacrifice that, or is it just more musical differences? Um, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, uh, I mean, it, it definitely takes that sacrifice and uh, that dedication and, you know, and having that same vision, I mean, it will pay off in the end. And when you don't have that, it, it just become, becomes an obstacle. And uh, especially musically, you know, I mean, if you're not telling in a studio, it, it could feel like pulling teeth trying to get through a song, you know. And yeah. and that's what we kind of experienced in the past. And just when us three got together and we got in the room, it was it just flowed. I mean, it, there was no obstacle whatsoever. Um, I think 
our obstacles were that we had just so many ideas flying. It's like, where do we, you know, pick? Begin. Yeah, where do we yeah. You know, stop and go to start with this, you know? So that's, which is a blessing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talk about overcoming obstacles. Frankly, you're up in Canada. I mean, you know, so, I mean, willing to put in that time and dedication to the band shows that, you know, anything can happen if you really want to make it happen. Well, first off, if 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 we can get rated R, it's because he's the shit. And that's just <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a lot of dedication, you know, a lot of sacrifice, you know. I mean, I can't even remember how many times I've driven to Chicago from Montreal, Canada, you know, 14, 15, 16-hour drives on my own. And I did it because I knew there was something there. And I knew that, you know, the music that we do is completely unique. And something I want to continue doing for a very long time. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the world that we live in today with all the technology we have, it does make it a lot easier for band members to have members, I mean, I mean, all over the country, all over the world. I mean, because you can swap files and go back and forth with Skype and other things. Uh, but yeah. is there something to being in the same room together where things kind of really gel at that point, or can you make it happen you know, electronically? It, you know, even outside of uh, being in a room, we still have that chemistry. Um, I mean, if Franco sends us an idea or we send him an idea, it's just it just happens. It's We just know each other so well on what we do in the group that you kind of instinctively know where to go. And, you know, adjustments will be made when we, you know, hash it out in the recording studio and do the fine-tuning when we're recording. But, um, you know, let's face it, come on. You know, Canada's like a little drive away. I don't believe in that border. (laughs) 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 We're not stopped by an ocean, so he doesn't have to rowboat over here. So (laughs) it's like another giant state. Exactly. Well, I mean, the new album is out right now. I mean, Crown of Villain is just a brutal album from start to finish. I mean, there's nothing about this album that's for the weak hearted and the faint. I mean, what were the challenges of getting this album out and putting it together? Was there a lot going on behind the scenes to get it to happen? Um, with this record, we really didn't have anything really written as we were going on in. We may have had ideas. Um, our only, what we had preconceived was we wanted to rage always groove, tell a story, be very melodic. Um, it was, wasn't until Carmine Apice, who produced her album, came in the picture. Franco flew out to Manhattan and meet up with them and uh, shot the shit with them for four or five hours, just talking back and forth on what we vision, on what we want to do. And literally, we got in the studio. We were, we were really writing and recording at the same time. And one of the aspects that Usually in past bands, most bands will write the songs, rehearse it, and then record it. But uh, sometimes what happens, you over-rehearse it, and that kind of spark, that energy kind of dies away, and you're kind of just playing it. And anyone who's been in a band might have recorded the same song like a thousand times in a demo. Two or three CDs of the same song, same tempos, same way it's played, one might feel that like, okay, why is it when I cruise in my ride and I listen to this, I zone in, but I listen to the same CD of that song and another one and I'm not. And uh, we wanted to take an older school approach, which is kind of like the idea of tape is always running. And really bringing in, and Carmine was a big influence on it, being spontaneous and, and uh, creatively open and capturing the moment. And uh, a lot of things happen just on the moment. 
And uh, that was what we were setting out to achieve. And, I, you know, we truly got it. I have to agree. I think you did. Frank, I like you went to you went to New York to meet up with Carmine, and there was a lot of talking going. I'm sure 90% of it, if 99 of it, was all Carmine talking. Yeah, he really was. <laughs> <laughs> Carmine's a good friend of the show. He's been here many, many times. You can't get a word in edgewise with that guy. That's an Italian New Yorker for you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you got an Italian New Yorker and you got an Italian Canadian. There you <laughs> go. That's <laughs> 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 Well, that's right. <laughs> God, cool. we should said it the right way. <laughs> that's great. I've been around this Italian for a while. I'm picking oh, up. Oh, God. Well, well, how did you guys hook up with Carmine? You never mentioned how you actually hooked up with or met him. Um, I, I think there was a time in our life when we were looking for the right producer and the right person to just jump in and guide us the right way and I had spoken to my manager and I asked him if he knew someone and he just came out with Carmine Apiece and uh, the rest is history we made contact and I flew over and uh, you know sat with him for a while and the rest is history yeah I mean every time I think about Carmine you can see everything about all the bands he's played in the bands he's worked with in the end all I can think about is that the man played on the Ed Sullivan show and met Ed Sullivan I mean (laughs) that's like the be all end all yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I saw uh, that. Yeah, I mean, 40 years of, you know, a professional musician and just all the artists he's played with. I mean, Jeff Beck, you know, wrote and uh, jammed with Rod Stewart. And, and, you know, the list just goes on and on. And it's that is diversity, you know. And, yeah. you know, we were soaking everything up like a sponge. I mean, it's absolutely priceless to, to gain that kind of knowledge. Uh, from somebody, you know, that's so experienced. Um, he was definitely the right fit for us. And uh, I, without even a question, I, we would love to just do another record with him again. Yeah, well, hopefully that'll happen. You can tell him I said that. Plug it in his ear. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him know. Uh, you know, I mean, when I listen to this record, it gets me right from the beginning, you know, and it carries me through the whole record. But it, it's different out there today. A lot of these younger kids, I mean, they don't really give albums a chance to grow in them. And with some bands, that's, you know, just a part of life. You put on a record. You might not get into it the first time around. you got to come back to it. But you got to hit these new kids, with like, like right off the bat within the first 10 seconds. Does that make it harder for you as a musician to kind of grab an audience or grab people in where you have to kind of, like, write to get them right away because they have a short attention span? Yeah, I mean, you know, we got to make sure we don't pop Adderall. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I think sometimes we have a little bit of ADD ourselves, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I think it's just when it speaks, it speaks and it grabs attention. Um, I know the songs have definitely shortened in length and uh, something that we weren't really looking to do when we were doing the record. Um, I think we just, it was just coming naturally once again, but, uh, we definitely want, you know, our idea was to, like, kick you right in the ass, right in the beginning, right out of the box, get right to the point, you know. Yeah, yeah. All metal, well, no bullshit. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, be, being being a three-piece band, I mean, each member really has got to carry their own weight to give it a big, full sound. But live, you guys aren't doing without a bass player, right? That's right. We're, well, uh, you... it's just guitar, drums, and vocals, and, um... I mean, we we got a bag of tricks on how we do it, but nah, I'm just messing with it. I mean, it took us months to figure out 
I mean, really, that idea came from Carmine when we were recording in Jersey. Um, the sound was so big, and I remember talking to him and be like, hey, you know, we've got to find a bass player, but I'm thinking about just writing bass. And he just turned, and he's like, you know what? You guys don't need a bass player. And I was yeah, like, he was like, you're going to be the white stripes of metal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we're like, come on, you're, you're nuts. No way. And, you know, we couldn't win. You know, I mean, we were like, you sure this song's in a different key? You know, you might need bass. And he's like, no, you're going to reconfigure it, and you're going to do it your way, you know, with the tuning that you're in. And I was like, man, I'm not going to win on this. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, he was right. Uh, I mean, it, the tuning we're in, um, I, I do have, um, like, an octave pedal uh, that goes even lower that creates the idea of, of a bass guitar underneath. Yeah. So it fills up the whole spectrum from the low all the way to the highs. And if you were to add a bass, it would just get muddy, and there wasn't any room. And uh, it, it stuck, and it just sounds full. You know, the, the hard part was trying to translate that then when we were done, took us like six months to figure it out, but we did it. And uh, it's translating. And it's yeah. really, really vibing with, uh, uh, you know, the audience when we're playing. I mean, they they just keep on coming up. They're like, I don't know how three guys make so much noise. And it's like, that's right. <laughs> that's well, why for we're the audience, there. For the audience, it's a plus because that's one less way they got to move their head to look on a different side of the stage. That's right. You can look at three good-looking guys. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, bass players always have a bad, not a bad, bass players always get shitted on that they're not needed in a band. You guys have finally put the nail in the coffin for bass players. Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to ruin it for a lot of bands. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. There's <laughs> been shows where's the bass player I was hanging out with my older brother and, and when he heard of the idea you know shooting some whiskey and he said the same thing he's like you're going to ruin it for a lot of bands I was like you know <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> do you find that people do look on the other side of the stage for a bass player for a while when you first come on and they don't know who you are yet well our setup live um, usually a drummer will sit in the back so my brother will actually sit on stage right, right up front. So we're all oh, okay. up front on the stage. So we fill up the whole thing. So everyone's seeing everything all at once and while we're doing it. So, yeah. Which is a plus because, you know, when you're opening up for X, sometimes they throw you in front of their gear. So no big deal for us. That's what we prefer, you know. Yeah, that, that's definitely funny stuff. Man. But when, you, when you're in the studio recording or you're writing, do you have to be kind of careful of what you – Right, making sure you can recreate it live because you can go crazy in the studio. Oh, totally, hundred percent right about that. You know, you might have multiple ideas, and you got to either try to figure out a way to merge the two, or pick and choose your battle. And uh, Carmine was definitely there to cap it on us to make sure that you try to go overboard in production. You know, so we we were really conscious of really keeping it raw and stripping it down while we were recording, so that way live it did translate. Yeah. So I know you guys have a couple of shows coming up, but what are the plans, you know, for the rest of this year? We're closing in towards the end of it right now. What are the, like, the main things you want to get accomplished for the years up? Man, make some musical history, pass on the torch, influence a generation, you know, keeping the authenticity in music and uh, definitely keeping, you know, the – 
you know, song to song, you know, on its own to to live on. Um, it's really easy today to just get caught up in technology, and that's one thing we wanted to stay away from uh, relying on. So uh, really bringing it back to the songs, you know, what we all grew up listening to, whether Zeppelin or Beatles or Aerosmith, um, you know, really keeping it to the core and, and, and just influence a generation. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if we could pass on that torch, you know, we can all die happy. Well, I think you guys are going to die happy. You, you really put out a great record here. It kind of melds a little bit of the old and new and everything in between and a whole new vibe to it. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough for being here today. You know, uh, Mike, Franco, the best of luck. I, I know you have shows coming up in New York, right? Yeah, we actually are uh, going to be doing some rehearsing out here, just, uh, you know, tightening up our show and preparing for the next few days and uh, and just going to enjoy it out here and have a good time. Hey. I can't wait to see you guys and, play live. It's going to be amazing. And uh, by the way, today uh, our video drops worldwide for uh, Damnation. So uh, check it out. It is uh, Google it. You can go on our Facebook, uh, Chains Over Razors on Facebook, or uh, ChainsOverRazors.com, or uh, Chains Razors on Twitter. That's the best way to find you guys. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys live, man. You have great rehearsals, kick ass. I'll be looking for the bass play still because I'm old school, but I'll get over it after a little while. Hey, you should come out to the show. I am going to be at the show. Well, I'll hang be out. There. We'll get crazy. Absolutely. The first beer awesome. is on me. Uh, hey, first shot's on me, Mike. All <laughs> right. And Franco, I'll bring, I'll bring a quarter pound of gobble Don't worry about it. Nice. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. I'll see you this week. All right, Mike. Take care, man. Thank Take you. Care.
Ah, oh, Pariah. I haven't heard played them and heard them in a long time. Killing for company. All right, we're down to the last ten minutes of the show. We're gonna wrap it up here real soon. We're not here next week. We're on vacation, but the show will be back September fourth. We have Chris Black from High Spirits and John Didi. He's got a new band called uh, Messiah. I have some of the members from the band Forum out of Australia. And I believe he's an Animal, uh, Animal USA right now. I'm not sure. They've had quite a few lineup changes, that band. I think he's playing with them also. So it's going to be a great show. Stick around for it. How about right now we do some uh, new Sabaton? This is called Last Dying Breath.
All right, there you go. Brand new Sabaton, Last Dying Breath. Sounds like all the other Sabatons. All right, we're going to wrap it up here today. I want to thank my guest. We got a great show tonight. I'm sorry I kind of had to rush through things tonight, but uh, <laughs> I have my reasons. But we will be back September 4th. So take care, everybody. Have a great week. I will see you two Sundays from tonight. Let's wrap it up with some tank. T-W-D-A-M-O. Take care, everybody. Good night.
out who the neighbor around the corner is. Oh, yeah? I like him a lot. Ooh. He lets me talk as much as I want, is very simple, and has great plans. <laughs> okay, I have to meet him. Sure. Say hi. This is Metro PCS. Metro PCS is in your neighborhood. Come say hi and get unlimited data, talk, and text for only $30, period. All on the fast nationwide 4G LTE T-Mobile network. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. One gigabyte of high-speed data included. See store for details, terms, and conditions at data management info. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.